God is the one who does the work of regeneration, and then he commands us to be converted. Um, Studying conversion is very, very important so we can understand what God has done in our own lives. In 1 Peter 1.3, it says that God caused you to be born again. It's not you that causes yourself to be born again. God does that work. God has to give and grant life. You cannot grant life to yourself. He has to grant life and eyes to see before you even have the power to believe and repent. We're looking now in this series on the human side of conversion. Before that happens, the split second, so to say, before that happens, God has to do an operation on your mind and your heart to change you, or you would never seek for God. It says in 1 Corinthians that a natural man cannot even receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's not, it doesn't even make any sense to him. It takes God's work on your life in order to do that. But, but the command to repent and the command to believe is given to you. And so you need to listen with ears. And when, if you don't think you're understanding, you need to ask God, help me to hear, to understand what you're saying to me that I may be truly converted. So we've been studying the components of conversion. Again, I'll say conversion is the human side of salvation. We repent, we believe, but behind that is the divine side called regeneration or being born again. It is God who has to grant life inwardly. God is the one who causes us to be born again so our faith can emerge that instant that we're born again. And so conversion is a beautiful thing. Looking around the auditorium here, many of you, hopefully most of you, I would that all of you are converted that you have a conversion, a true conversion to Jesus Christ, that you're not going to be one of the ones cast out into the outer darkness, that you're going to realize on that day what a fool you were, that you were given an opportunity for everything and you turned it down. And by the way, when you sit and do nothing, you're turning it down. You have to respond to the message. God demands that you respond to the message. You have to hear and you have to make your own personal decision. And if you feel it's not right in your mind, you have to beg God, make this clear to me. 1 Timothy 2.4 says God desires all men to be saved. He's reaching out with the gospel to all men. He knows that men are stubborn and they're not going to respond. And so he does his special work on the inside. We're going to see that today. These components of conversion are so important because Christianity is so mixed in with everything else. People don't even know what it is anymore to have a true conversion. And so I think it really is worth our time and study to have gone through conversion in detail as we have done the last few Sundays. Turn again then in, Act, uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And again, we'll read the text. It's just verses 37 through 41, but they reveal this mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. It wasn't even called Christianity then, but it was a true conversion. And as you're studying it, thinking about it, think about yourself and think about how you present the gospel to others and what you expect of sinners when you're talking to them. Verse 37 of Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, that's that long sermon about Jesus Christ that Peter had preached. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's the big question, isn't it? And Peter said to him, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls, added to the church, that is. So the text obviously presents these components of biblical conversion. A little bit of review for you if you hadn't heard the earlier messages. Component number one of conversion is gospel preaching or the presentation of the message about Jesus Christ. There has to be a word presentation about Jesus Christ. And this is uh, clear from the context. Peter's sermon in the previous verses penetrated deep with inside those Jews as they realized they'd crucified their king, their Messiah. It changed their minds, and as it changed their minds, it changed the purpose and the direction of their life, and it brought them to confess this Jesus of Nazareth was a long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel. And so they were brought to faith. Again, going behind the scenes to see what God was doing, which is not presented in Acts 2, James chapter 1 and verse 18 reminds us that God is the one who brings us forth to saving faith by the word of truth. It's the word of truth that brings us to saving faith. And so God was doing that through the preaching of the word. Now, there may have been many more than 3,000 that were there that rejected this message, but in 3,000, God so worked that they would bring forth a faith. Component number two, also review, is conviction of sins. So many people are coming to Jesus these days, but they're coming to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They're coming to Jesus to make them feel better about themselves or to get rich or to have health. If you come to Jesus for that reason, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. You don't really have a relationship with God yet. You've received bad teaching, false Christianity. I was in it for the first 18 years of my life. It's just a false kind of Christianity, not the truth. And it's out there in abundance. You have to be convinced that you are in need of Christ. And it so humbles you that you almost literally cry out, please save me. What must I do to be saved? Jesus, I need you. I see that I'm ruined without you. I see the eternal danger without you. I don't think there's anything good inside of me that I'm going to present myself to you. It's you. It's all you. It's not me. That's a lowering of self, not a raising of self. You lower yourself. You esteem Christ. You come as a beggar to Christ and say, I realize I'm ruined that you would actually be right to destroy me. And you come to that point and you realize it's not about whether I feel good enough. It just, just save me and deliver me from eternal destruction. There are many people who come to church and come to Christ not for those reasons, and they're not saved. You need to know in your heart the depravity of yourself and beg for salvation. Component number three of conversion then is genuine repentance. Feeling the sting of sin, your sin, not someone else's sin, not how someone else treated you, how you treated God. Feeling the sting of that, then what you say is, God, I want to believe. And you turn away from your life. Your life is going this direction. Your life is being lived for another God or for another religion or for you or for some other purpose, money, fame. Maybe it's just comfort and ease. And you realize that's not the right purpose for life. To get an education, grow up, make a name for yourself, that's a false god. That's a golden cow. And you realize i got to turn away from sin. I need a radical change in my life. Not a little adjustment, not a little bit of adding religion to my life, but a complete, a complete surrender of my life to Christ. Repentance and conversion are so closely related, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot be converted without a genuine repentance, a genuine changing of mind. 
And then there's the fourth component that we talked about last time, and that is the sign of water baptism. And we took time with this because baptism has been so corrupted by the church through the centuries, and yet it's so simple. It's so direct. The New Testament makes it clear that there's a new covenant, and baptism goes with the new covenant, not the old covenant. You already be baptized after you become a believer. You come to the point where you repent, and then when you repent, then you're qualified to get baptized. You're not baptized because of your parents' faith. You're not baptized because of your parents' prayer or because of Christendom or anything like that. That makes a lot of people baptized that aren't even saved. And that's not the purpose of baptism. Others take baptism and they say, you have to go through the water to be saved. And they misread this text as if the water itself somehow has some properties that can save you. Water baptism does not save you. It's the symbol of salvation, right? It's the symbol of conversion, and it's a wonderful symbol for conversion. It shows the washing away of sins, not by the water, but by the blood of Christ. It shows the old life has died and has been raised to new life. Now you come out of the the waters of baptism a new person. It's such a clear and simple symbol, it's hard to believe it's been so corrupted by the church. But if you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized to be obedient to your Lord and Savior who told you, repent and be baptized. It's a very clear command. Everyone back there who was converted obeyed Jesus and were baptized. They wouldn't even let them into the church if they wouldn't receive a water baptism. Then and only then were they added and joined to the church, as you clearly see demonstrated here as well. Today now we're going to talk about a a couple more components of conversion, and these components are the blessings of conversion. All of that is the hard part. That's the hard thing to listen to that our society does not want to hear. Here's the part that people like to talk about, but please remember when we get to the blessings of conversion, you can't have those. You're not allowed to have those. Those are withheld from you. God does not give those to you. He's going to keep those from people who don't go through the conviction of sin, the hearing of the word of God, the conviction of sin, the repentance. That's what is needed. You go through that, then the blessings are yours, right? And so you can rejoice in those blessings if they're yours. Component number five, write it down. Stay with me now. Component number five, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. The middle part of verse 38. For the forgiveness of your sins. Beloved, please don't ever let such common words in the Bible bore you. Don't gloss such a marvelous reality. Ponder it instead, would you? Forgiveness of sins is a most beautiful reality. It is at the heart of our Christian experience. Forgiveness of sins is built into the very fabric of our relationship with God. There is no relationship with God other than being an enemy if you don't have forgiveness of sins. There's no way to be right with God apart from God forgiving you for the wrongs you have done against him. Christianity is unique in that, in that you have have violated God. You are not right with God. You cannot earn your way back to God. You cannot do the, the five pillars of Islam or the seven sacraments of Catholicism or any other religion. They will not help you. The only way you're going to be right with God is if God is willing to forgive you. You're actually just doomed in and of yourself. There's no hope for you or for me. And Christianity is unique in that. It paints the bleakest picture of humanity that there is. By the way, that ought to tell you that it's from God. Because if we were tickling ears, right, we'd be telling everybody how wonderful they are. And by the way, would you like to donate money, right? That's how false religion works. 
come feel good about yourself, and by the way, we could use a little more money. That's how false religion functions in the world. You think people have enough discernment for that. If we're telling you you're terrible people, that's a message from God, because who's going to come and stay for that? Except true believers that know in their own conscience it's true, right? You're not a good person. Next to other people, that's fine. That's not the standard. The standard is the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ himself. How does your life measure up to him? You don't want to go there. God is eternally and persistently holy. And there is no way to be right with God except through forgiveness of sins. The holiness of God means that God hates sin. It means he never mixes with sin. It means that when sin is in his presence, he casts it out. And you and I, beloved, are sinners. God hates the sin. He has determined at the right time to destroy sin. People want to know, why is there evil in the world? There's evil only in the world for a while. God will eventually destroy it. Over and over, we see little, little executions of judgment against sin whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or the giant one with the flood or whether God strikes someone down dead because of their sin. But God executes vengeance. In fact, he does it so much, he says, don't take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. Those who have perverted his ways, he takes note of them. Those who suppress his word and his truth, he knows who does that. Those who have ignored his majesty and glory, he knows that. He never treats sin lightly. God is a fearsome God. And anyone who thinks that their sin is a small thing knows nothing about what it will be like to try to stand as a sinner in the presence of a God like that. In Romans 1, there's such a list of sins. Verses 28 and following, it says, Just as the Gentiles did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Does that sound like our society? We're not going to acknowledge God any longer, right? God then gave them over to a depraved mind. Does that not sound like our society? To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy. Boy, that describes our society. Murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving. They always talk about love out there. They don't have love. Unmerciful. They never have mercy against those they disagree with. And he goes on to talk about I'm sorry, prior to that, even talks about the disgusting nature of homosexuality and how that is the quintessential example of people throwing off the knowledge of God. They can't even figure out their own gender. They can't even figure out their own body. They're so rebellious towards God in their own being, they cast God off. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And why did he say that? Do not be deceived. Because there's always people that want to hang on to their sin and say they have a relationship with God. You can't do that. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That describes some of the transgender stuff today. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You don't need anyone to interpret that for you. Do not be deceived. 
If that is your life, that is your lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. God will not grant you entrance. With so much sin in each person's life, forgiveness is the only hope. Forgiveness of sins is a blessed and wonderful hope. Why do you think Jesus taught his disciples when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, and then it gets to that part, forgive us our what? Debts as we forgive our debtors, right? It's no surprise Peter emphasizes right here in the response, forgiveness of sins. The first blessing of conversion. You you may be afraid, you may be fearful that you have so violated God that God is not going to accept you. You need to know as the first blessing of conversion, God who knows everything and has searched your mind entirely, knows every wrong thing that you have said, that God is willing to pardon that mountain of sin. He's willing to take away that sin. He's willing to cast it as far as the east is from the west. What is forgiveness exactly? Forgiveness, aphesis in Greek, is a commercial term. It's a money term. It's an accounting term in a sense, a term that comes from the business world. It has to do with someone who is bound by the obligation to pay a debt, even legally, and then someone releases them from that obligation. They didn't make the payment. They couldn't make the payment But the one who is owed the money, who could demand the payment, says, I'm going to release you. If you borrowed $5,000 and you can't repay any of it, and the person, rather than demanding you pay back the $5,000, decides, it'll be my loss. I'm going to free you. I'm losing the $5,000 because I, I gave it to you. Now, I expected to get it back, and now you can't give it back. So who's the one who loses it? I lose it, right? Because I lent it. But I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to release the debt. The one who suffers in that sense is the one who was wronged. We wronged God. He takes that loss upon himself, you see, and he offers full pardon to us. The word debts in the Lord's prayer, aphelma, means simply that. We are indebted to God. We owe God. Some of you owe credit card companies, right? Amen? You owe credit card companies. You owe banks your mortgage. You owe God much, much, much more. When the Bible speaks of debt towards God, it's talking about how breaking God's law has made us liable to the courts of heaven, leading to eternal, eternal payment that has to be made. Why are people thrown into hell? Hell is kind of like a prison for all eternity where they will pay and pay and pay and they'll never pay enough. They'll never be able to pay back God and so they're never released. God is is willing to pardon all your sins, but you have to meet the qualifications. You have to feel the sting of sin. You need to sense that you're lost. You need to come to the Lord in repentance. Then he'll be willing to pardon. Listen, a lot of times people think that because God forgives sins, that he excuses sin, that he doesn't think sin is a big deal. That's not true. In Exodus 34, 7, when God was declaring his own glory, he said, God is the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's going to be punishment for the guilty. So all of us are guilty. Obviously, we have to be made unguilty and forgiven. Sins must be, listen, sins must be forgiven or they must be paid. 
When one is convicted of sin, then he must repent of personal sin, not thinking about anybody else, not blaming God for how their life turned out, not saying, God, half of this is your fault because of the bad circumstances of my life, but just humbly asking, God, would you please, as your word says, release me from my debt, my entire debt. The debt that we owe God for sin is beyond anything we could pay in a 100,000 lifetimes. Every moment of every single day that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are sinning. And that's every day. And by sinning, we're adding to our debt. The longer you live, the more debt you have. Every time something, some provision that has happened to us has been given to us and we withhold heartfelt thanks from God, we sin. Every time we congratulate ourselves rather than giving glory to God, we sin. Every impure thought, every spiteful thought towards another person, we sin. Every crass word we participate in, we sin. Every selfish impulse we have, we sin. Every resistance to what the Bible is teaching us, we sin. We violate God's will for our lives. We violate his moral standards. In Romans 2, it says, because of your stubbornness, listen to that, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, What's happening to people like that that won't repent? They are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The judgment hasn't fallen yet. It's coming. What are you doing in the meantime when you don't respond? You're you're making a deposit, a deeper and deeper debt that you owe God so that when his wrath falls, yours yours will be even worse. That's what you're doing by holding back and waiting. Your debt is getting bigger. We desperately need God's forgiveness. You desperately need God to forgive you of your sins. Boy, Satan loves to work in so many ways to get our mind to think wrong here. Psychologists regularly give foolish advice. They say, you need to learn to forgive yourself. Listen to me. You cannot forgive yourself. Because you do not owe yourself a debt. Such a thought is dishonoring to God. It's a lie. You kind of endorsed yourself as a kind of a God. that, Like you made yourself and you owe yourself something. You don't owe yourself anything. You don't even make yourself. You don't even exist except that God keeps you alive. You're his creature. You're his creator. It's not your holy standards that were violated. You owe God the debt. This awesome and glorious God in the heavens, this master of the universe, if you could see him sitting on his throne and realize he knows you and that you have offended him, you'd be so quick to ask for forgiveness. And Jesus is the only one who can provide forgiveness for you. The only one. In Acts 5, 3, when we get there, it'll say... Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Listen, if you think that there is a sin that you have committed that God will not forgive you of, please remember the context of what we're studying right here in Acts 2. 
these people had cried for the crucifixion of their king. They were guilty of the the murder of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, through Peter and the apostles, was saying, I am willing to forgive you for executing me on a cross. I really doubt you've done anything that bad. Acts 10.43, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through Jesus' name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's a promise. You should never doubt, if you're a believer in Jesus, you should never doubt that he gives forgiveness of sins. You're doubting his love and you're doubting his promise in his word. Why should I be converted to Christianity when, when, I was, when I was going through my conversion that night? It was a no-brainer. God is willing to forgive this fool. No hesitation. Why should I be converted to Christianity? Because I owe God a mountain of debt and I can't pay it myself. And you can never repay your sins. You'll have to be in jail forever in the lake of fire and pay every last cent, and you'll never be able to pay. You'll never get out, ever. There's only one way to escape. All your debts have to be released. And there's only one person who can do it. There's only one person who did it. He went to the cross to pay the debt. How could one death of one Jew... On one cross, pay for the sins of all believers for all time. How could that be? Because that one man was not just a man. He was the Lord God dying on the cross. He was the God-man. And as eternal God and as man, he was shedding his blood for the sins of mankind. He's the Lamb of God. His blood is that powerful. His blood is precious. His blood is able to save you. And that's all you need to know. Only through Jesus' shed blood is God willing to accept you. You have no other basis. It doesn't matter if your parents were Christians. It doesn't matter if you've been a deacon. It doesn't matter at all who you are, who you think you are. There's only one basis on which you will be accepted before God. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Think of that. Think of the ugliness of your life before God and His perfect holiness and Christ wiping it all away. Do you need another reason to become a Christian? Do you need another reason to know the beauty of conversion? Why would the world then resist being converted? Because they're blind. There is no cost to this deal for you except the deal. God said, here's the deal. I take the loss. Your sin is removed. Why would you resist that? What is it you're, you're not hearing when that is said? If you owe $10 million right now and someone said they'd pay it for you, would you turn that down? Are you that much of a fool? You think there's any intellectual quality to taking that position? To pretend you owe no debt is to lie to yourself. In your own conscience, you know you've sinned. To go to somebody else to pay the debt's not going to work. What are they going to do? They have their own sins to pay for. Only the shedding of innocent blood 
is what God takes. What do you think all those animal sacrifices were supposed to represent for all those years in Israel's history? Hebrews 9.22 makes it crystal clear. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. Muhammad can't do a thing for anybody. Buddha can't do anything. Buddha thinks he'll just, he'll just meditate his sins away, I guess. He knows now because he's suffering now. There was only one innocent person in the history of mankind, and he laid down his life for you if you accept it. John alluded to this passage, the first hour, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. You know what a ransom is? It's a payment, a payment. He gave his life as a payment so we could have everlasting life. See, it wasn't actually the blood that saved. It was the life in the blood that saved. The blood is the symbol for the life being poured out. The life of the flesh of a human being is where it's in the blood. When the blood is poured out, the life is poured out. And it's the life that was given as payment. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in Jesus, we have redemption. You know what redemption is? It's being purchased back from slavery. In Jesus, we have redemption through what? Through his blood. Why? Because in the blood is life. And then it says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Call it debts, call it trespasses, call it sins, iniquity, abomination, wicked, evil, doesn't matter. He forgives it all. For those who have reverence in him. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. That's our God. That's why we sing. That's why we come to church. This is our God. This is what he did for us. Amen? The men in our Saturday men's breakfast recite Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find what? Compassion. Compassion. Psalm 32, 1 says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Let me read that again, because I know how it is when you're listening to a sermon. Sometimes you check out. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's a blessing. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Beloved, forgiveness is reason enough to convert to Christianity. Thank God for the benefit of conversion. 1 John 2.12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. God forgave you for Jesus' namesake. He did it because of what Jesus did. He didn't do it so much for you. He did it for his son. His son went to the cross and he said, I'll forgive them for your namesake, Jesus. God could have written us off. He could have said, forget about this bunch. Let me just wipe them out. He would have been fine to do that. He would have been just and holy. But he forgave a massive debt that we have to him. Hallelujah. What a savior. Component number six, 
Take notes, you'll get more out of it. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's still in verse 38. I know we're having a hard time getting out of verse 38. And into verse 39. And I think this is just as good. And, so there's more blessing, right? Forgiveness of sins and there's more. Wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't that be okay? Aren't you satisfied with forgiveness of sins? I don't need anything else. Just let me get into heaven in some little corner, open the door for people as they go in and out. I don't know. I don't need any more than that. That's good enough. I'm not going to hell. Fine. No more grace. No more blessing. I don't need one more drop. And then there's the word and. By the way, every word in the Bible is inspired. I like that word and. And you will receive more. What's this? The gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Again, I say forgiveness is good enough. Getting out of eternal debt, I don't need more than that. But then God, because of who he is, the kind of father that he is, he heaps blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing. What else, you ask? The Holy Spirit is God's gift in the new covenant to every single believer. We talked about this in the first few verses of Acts 2. This is the new covenant age, and God has a greater covenant in this age than under the Mosaic law. It's a better covenant. It's even called a better covenant. And he says, what you're going to get is the treasure of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God inside your own body. Acts chapter 2 teaches that every single believer in Jesus, without exception, male, female, slave, free, rich, poor, it doesn't matter, received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because he came on the day of Pentecost. There wasn't one believer that was left out of that gracious bestowal by God. If you truly were Pentecostal, as some people like to call themselves. There are a lot of Pentecostals in Latin America. If they were truly Pentecostal, they must believe that every believer gets the Holy Spirit. Why? Because on the day of Pentecost, every believer got the Holy Spirit. And here, Peter is promising it to every person that's willing to repent. They also will get the Holy Spirit. Every last one of them. Every time today someone converts to Jesus Christ, they immediately, whether they feel it or not, doesn't matter. They immediately get the gift of the Holy Spirit as their abiding possession. Why? Because the Holy Spirit communicates to you personally and to us collectively as a church and to every local church the very presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not want to leave his disciples as, as orphans. He, he exited and he, he went into heaven and he promised to send his presence back down into the world. And so in a sense, Christ came through the presence of his spirit to communicate that in a very close, personal, and effective way to our own hearts. While we were in Ecuador, another one of the things that Pastor Juan likes to do without telling me, we were driving back home from the equator, and he said, let's go somewhere. I couldn't tell what he was saying. I was in the back seat. And we ended up at an orphanage, a nice Christian orphanage, a beautiful Christian orphanage. And they've taken such care to take care of the, the littlest ones and then the toddlers, and each room had their rules and how they treated them children that were abandoned at the hospital, children who 
whose mother was an addict of some kind, um, where they were still trying to take them off of the cocaine or whatever it was and kind of ease them off of that, children who had been abandoned, and they were showing them the love of Christ and trying to care for them and place them. And they, they just, it was a beautiful, beautiful operation that they had there. Two of the young ladies that worked at the orphanage were in uh, Pastor Juan's church uh, in Quito. And, but think about that. We're not orphans. We're not left alone or abandoned by God. Um, sometimes people feel they are. They believe that God has abandoned them. They look at their circumstances and they believe God has forgotten about them. Otherwise, why would they keep, why would they keep getting sick? Why would they be, not have the friends that they want? Why would they not have had a better marriage? Why would they not have a better job? Why would they not have whatever it is that they wish that they had when they were younger? And they feel God has abandoned them. God hasn't abandoned you. God is refining you. God is bringing you to your knees more. God is humbling you. God is molding your faith. God is working inside of you, refining you, because he has a plan to use you, and he can't because there's too much of you in the equation, and he wants more of Jesus in the equation, and he's working on you and refining you and polishing you. That's what he's doing in your life. That's what the Bible tells us. He's never abandoned you. And one of the reasons we know he has not abandoned us is he's given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. What kind of a God who could care less about us would say, you know, I'm not, going to give you the, I'm not going to give you the Holy Spirit. But if he gave us the Holy Spirit, he's saying, I want to be close to you. I want that relationship with you. I want you to know I am there with you every moment of every day. And he is the gift that is within us. He's not outside of us. He's not beside us. That was the old covenant. In the new covenant, he comes to dwell on the inside permanently and cannot be cast out. When the Holy Spirit arrived in his baptism fullness in Acts 2, it's true that he brought a whole variety of things we call spiritual gifts or charisma, charismatic gifts. This is not talking about that. There already have been charismatic gifts that are being displayed in Acts 2, the, the speaking of languages, and we talked about that before. There's a message on that. Just the apostles themselves are both an office and the exercising of the gift of apostleship. You see the prophetic word being given right here, words of encouragement. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about the Holy Spirit himself, God, the third person of the Trinity, being given as a gift to you and me. To live inside of us. He is the gift. John 14, 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. That's what he's called. What an amazing gift! What an amazing reality. He said, I know I'm leaving, but I'm going to ask the Father. I'm going to petition the Father to, to give another blessing to you, to give another thing to you. And that is He, the Holy Spirit Himself. What a gift the Holy Spirit is to every believer. He did much more than help them speak in foreign languages, the tongues that we talked about earlier in Acts 2. He is our abiding helper. Another translation for helper is, is comforter. Another, another translation for that is the, is the one called alongside each believer, the paraclete, the one who's called alongside literally to be there with you always as your friend, as your helper through everything that you go through in life. Wherever you go in the world, you always have the paraclete with you. You always have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what the design is for this covenant. It's a great covenant. That's what the design is for you, that you never feel abandoned. You never feel like an orphan. You never feel forgotten. You never think that you're neglected, that he's always there for you. Read John 14, 26 and John 15, 26 in your time. What a beautiful promise of the coming of the Spirit. He comes to live inside. We call it indwelling of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. That your body now houses the Holy Spirit of God in some mystical way. We don't understand. But your body now is called a temple. And what you do with your body matters. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it needs to act holy in your, your behavior. Not just now on Sunday, but tomorrow and the next day. Whatever you do in your body needs to be holy. Because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. The Holy Spirit's indwelling in you is actually called a seal. You would stamp and seal things that belong to you or that you wanted to exercise ownership over. And so it's God's way of saying, I've stamped you and sealed you. You're mine. I own you. You belong to me. You're my possession. I'm going to take you. That's in Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit reassures us when we begin to doubt that we belong to God. We doubt our salvation. We, we doubt our relationship with God. We wonder about it. And Romans eight sixteen says, the Holy Spirit inside of us bears witness with our spirit. How does that work? I don't know. I don't even really know what my spirit's like on the inside because I never really touched it. It's just kind of inside of us. And then the Holy Spirit's in there. And how does that work? And with our brain and our mind, I have no idea. I just know the answer is the Holy Spirit reassures our spirit. We belong to him. We're one of his. And what comes out of our heart is, Daddy, Abba, Father, and we're able to call out, God, you're my Father, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us everything that we need to understand about apostolic doctrine in our lives. 1 John 2.27 says that we have an anointing from the Holy One and we don't have anyone to teach us. No need of anyone to teach us. That means outside of the church. The church through the teachings of the apostles and the Holy Spirit helping us to understand and illumine that doctrine and the application of that doctrine. That's all that we need. We have a fully sufficient teacher. We shouldn't be going to to the other isms and to the philosophies and to the psychologies to figure ourselves out or to figure out how to be whole and complete people or how to live our lives or how to solve our problems. God is our all sufficient teacher through the word. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. Most wondrous of all, most wondrous of all, is the Holy Spirit communicates to us the very presence of Christ. And I'm going to end with this. In Romans 8 9, do you know what the Holy Spirit is called? He is called, and he has many names. The Holy Spirit is called, and this is precious to me, the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. What does that mean? That means more than just that Christ petitioned the Father so the Holy Spirit would come. In the mysteries of the Trinity, the Father relates to the Spirit, the Spirit relates to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, and whatever I missed there. And the three are one. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and he comes to dwell inside of us as a new covenant blessing for conversion that we have, he brings to me, to my life, to you, to your life, the very presence of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which you taste Christ every single day. He lives inside of you. He's familiar to you. You know him. You love him. Christ wanted to be close to you. He came to you to have his presence with you, inside of you. He did not abandon you. 
Remember how he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age? Now you know how. He is with you inside of you. He indwells you. Christ, through the presence of the Spirit, has come to you, and he's communicated his very presence to you. One day you'll see him in his body, his human body, and his glory as his face shines. As we see in the book of Revelation, his eyes are a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, which has been caused to glow in the furnace. And his face is like the sun shining in its strength, and his head and his hair are white like white wool, like snow. One day you're going to see that. And, and, and you're going to bow before him, and you're going to get very low before him, and you're going to acknowledge his greatness. But right now, the Spirit of Christ, who converted you, is inside of you. He converted you to follow him, and he put his Spirit inside of you so you could follow him. You see? He took care of everything. He knows everything. Conversion to Christianity, beloved, is beautiful. It's a beautiful and an honorable thing for you to work for the conversion of others. Tell them what they can get. A mountain of forgiveness. Tell them what they can get, the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in their own life. What an amazing, amazing blessing we have as Christians. Most, most blessed of all people on earth. Father in heaven, thank you for these blessings, these covenant blessings, these intractable blessings, these wonderful undeserved gifts. Oh, Father, we pray you would move the heart of anyone who still sits on the fence and thinks that they will get anything in the world that is better than this, that they would be able to sing that song that we sang, you can have all the world, just give me Jesus. We pray they would want that in their heart and be converted this very day. And empower your people, give them great joy when they're out there working for the conversion of others, that they would be bold and their conscience would be not only clear but excited that they, of all people in the world, are the ones that you are using to bring others to the saving knowledge of your son. Encourage them in their witness in every place they go, Father, in home, in neighborhood, in work, in the commercial world, wherever they have contact with people, wherever they have a sphere of influence, Lord, let them work for this most blessed of all works, the conversion of souls. For we've prayed it in Christ's name for his glory.